The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Hello, welcome to the Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. Today we will continue with the part two of the subject which we started last week uh, with Professor Michael Cox at London School of Economics, the rise of populism and the crisis of globalization, Brexit, Trump and beyond. Uh, Last week in our uh, first episode on this subject, uh, we heard Professor Cox, and then we uh, started sharing the excerpts from the experts from the session chaired by Professor Cox. Uh, We will uh, start today with another expert uh, talking about Brexit, nationalism, and its implications for UK. Now we move on to the bigger questions. Um, and I've been tasked with talking to you about nationalism. Um, I'm also going to talk to you about a couple of other isms which I think creep in to any conversation around implications. But before I do that, I want to go back to what is nationalism, when did it emerge, and how then does this set us up, in a sense, for beginning to make sense of some of the more identity-oriented implications of Brexit. Um, I'm sure as many of you know, the idea of nationalism emerges powerfully at the end of the 18th century and into the beginning of the 19th. And isn't it a wonderful coincidence, of course, that one of the great moments when it comes to the fore for the first time is in the American Declaration of Independence. And that begins, of course, very much when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bonds which have connected them with another. And they're, again, kind of reminded of Brexit. Uh, From there, the next great event is, of course, the French Revolution. And we have another powerful statement. All sovereignty rests essentially in the nation. Nobody may exercise authority which does not come from the nation expressly. What those two events do, effectively, is attempt to provide us with an answer to what Ivor Jennings once pointed out was the great gaping hole in representative government, in other words, democracy. On the surface, says Jennings, it seems straightforward. Let the people decide. But of course, the people cannot decide until somebody decides who are the people. 
and the nation, and therefore nationalism, emerges as a way to answer this question. The people are the nation. Who are the nation? The nation, by the way, delightfully, is of course also a contested concept, and it can be defined in terms of ethnicity, in terms of primordial sense of ancient origins, myths and memories. It can also be defined very much in terms of a civic identity, lived experience under shared political institutions, a common space on the map, creating a common culture, and between these two very rival, very different definitions, you have a whole range of potentially contradictory implications in terms of politics. Added to that, I think we can now see another ism, which is the ism, of course, Mick was talking about in favor, which the populism shouldn't be confused with nationalism. I think it is a thinner ism, but it also picks up the Ivor Jennings tension, again, who are the people? In this case, of course, the people are the true, authentic people who should be empowered, but by implication are not, and instead power lies in the hands of a potentially nasty elite uh, that doesn't fully represent the people. And again, we then fall back potentially on various descriptive characteristics similarly to nationalism. Are the people ethnically and culturally defined by shared language? Are they defined more civically, more by political values? And there's a lot of dialogue and contestation around that. In terms of Brexit, we have, of course, both aspects of this interesting question showing up. We have true nationalism, of course, in the context of Scotland, which received devolution as a way of addressing a desire to have a shared collective identity of a Scottish nation empowered politically in a devolved organization. And which is, of course, the Parliament in Edinburgh. And around the independence referendum, we have this continuing to have traction. And in the Brexit vote, we had a very clear sense in Scotland of the Scottish nation having a clear view in terms of that relationship between Scotland and Brussels. So there we have a clear sense of the nation. And we now, of course, in Scotland have further ambiguities from the very recent vote, um, where there seems to be a movement back towards an understanding of Scotland as having its nationalism represented through devolution once again, not wanting to go so far as separation, because that would then remove them from a more important tie, a more important common market, which is, of course, within the United Kingdom. So there we have nationalism. We also have nationalism in Ireland. We have nationalism, I say, in Ireland purposefully because this brings in the whole question of the status of the six counties in the north, of the dilemma which emerged, of course, in 1922 when we had the creation of the Irish Republic and the retention of the six counties in the north as part of the United Kingdom and the question, what will happen, um, and all of the special relationships that were formed between the Irish Republic and the United Kingdom to allow effectively free movements of people between Ireland and the Sixth County and, of course, the United Kingdom more generally. And we have, again, in the North, clear vote to remain. Um, and we have, in Brussels, a clear identification that 
the status, the boundary between north and south is one of the top three issues, remember, they mm -hmm. want to have addressed in addition to mm -hmm. the question of citizenship and the question of who pays the divorce bill and how much it will be, the status of Northern Ireland. Again, a clear sense of nationalism, now with very significant implications given the coalition that seems to be emerging between the DUP and Mrs. May's now minority conservative government. Beyond that, though, we have any number of other rather interesting isms to think about. And the big one is, of course, populism. And again, we have this very clear divide shown up by the Brexit vote between that part of British electorate, mostly in England, but not exclusively, also in Wales, of course, uh, picking up a sense that there is a cleavage between, and this has been defined variously, the anywheres and the somewheres, of course the new rendering of it by Goodhart, uh, the somewheres are those that do have a sense of themselves as grounded in a particular place. They are a people from somewhere, England for instance, with shared cultural attributes of some kind, speaking English potentially, having a sense of themselves as having a historical direct of a longer standing than recent immigrants, potentially, different values, potentially contrasted with the anywheres that are, of course, another very salient identity community, which is defined in cosmopolitan terms. Irony here, of course, we were missing, for so many years we talked about this, the European demos, have we found one, almost coincidentally, out of the bubble of Brexit, because it does appear that there are 48% of people, at least at that point in time, who did identify with the European Union and perhaps didn't realize it until then, but they did. They actually valued free movement. They wanted to belong to something bigger. They liked the idea of being cosmopolitan and felt it quite profoundly, hence all of the follow-up that we have seen. So that's a big cleavage as well. Beyond that, further differences, which in some ways mirror this, but not completely. And again, we saw that powerfully in the vote of just the last 48 hours. Much talked about the difference between the shires and the spires. The shires <laughs> seeming to map on to somewhere, where are the somewhere, the somewhere they are in the countryside. It's not that straightforward, but, but then the spires on the other side, the spires, Oxford, Cambridge, the city of London, cosmopolitan elites who are other people, they're probably all experts, we you know what populism thinks of them, and again, the kind of cleavage as it goes. Uh, the final point, um, which I think is in some ways perhaps the most interesting in terms of implications for the future, is the generational divide, which also opens up uh, all of this, and again, we saw it very significantly recently in that election. And the generation seems to suggest that on the one hand we have an older cohort under this piece of great supporters, apparently the manifesto is an absolute disaster in terms of how they would react to it, who, as they are growing older, are more likely to make a conservative choice, more likely to feel themselves from somewhere, voted on every generation up, more so to exit. Except, of course, to the very oldest, to the members of the war, and Rosa Germain, that's quite interesting, also in terms of anywhere and somewhere. And the younger generations, from every generation we go back to the voting age and the first cast your ballot, voting ever more to remain within the European Union and coming out, as we know, en masse to support Corbyn, who is, of course, another version of populism 
framed differently. And in that sense, we might remember, of course, Lacan and Mouffe, who wanted to point out that in some variants of populism, you could potentially get an immense, sorry, impact if it meant that you could, in fact, engage harder to reach populations that had historically not engaged in political discussion, debate, and, of course, finally, the act of suffrage itself actually passing a ballot. Uh, so the implications, of course, for nationalism and We'll now take a short break and we'll come back with our next session. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. America Business Network. Welcome back. You are listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. Uh, Today's subject is the rise of populism in the crisis of globalization, Brexit, Trump and beyond. We'll now listen to the next expert talking about Brexit and UK-EU negotiations after the recent elections in UK. Um, (laughs) I'll just try and cover three um, brief points um, today. First of all, I'll, I'll give my own little take on what I think happened the other day um, in the general election and how that connects to Brexit. And then the second and third points, I will talk about the different negotiations, uh, which I've written about before. Uh, One of the problems, I think, with Brexit sometimes is that we try to analyse it without trying to give it some structure in terms of how it's actually unfolding. And I got a little strategic update for LSE Ideas a couple of months ago, in which I set out the 14, what I term negotiations, but actually you can argue that they're debates or they're kind of narratives and so forth, um, that are now unfolding in the UK, between the UK and the EU, and let's not forget the EU itself, the rest of the EU in terms of how it's grappling with Brexit as one of the challenges that it's facing. But my first, my first brief point then is what happened the other day. Um, I was just this morning just rereading, um, make made a joke earlier when I arrived, actually saying, well, to me, you only seem to read your own work. And actually this morning I was rereading my own work, um, an article from a few years ago called To Be or Not to Be in Europe, Is That the Question? In which I analyse for international affairs whether or not in trying to address the Europe question through a referendum, David Cameron was trying to answer a question which you couldn't define as just being about Europe. Um, this is a mistake I think Theresa May has made um, in thinking that she could call a general election on Brexit 
coincidentally then not want to talk about Brexit mm. <laughs> or want to talk about it in any way other than to say, please give me a mandate so I can be strong in negotiating Brexit, but I'm not going to tell you what Brexit I want, other than the kind of the ideas I've set down about mm. hard um, Brexit. When in fact, if you go back to the referendum itself, was the referendum about Brexit? Was it about Europe? Well, yes, of course, Europe was part of this. Europe was there. But if you look at what won the campaign for the Leave side, you've got to say it was very populist issues that played to very domestic matters, such as health. The figure of 350 million on the side of a bus. It was a lie. Of course it was nonsense. But it was incredibly effective. Matthew Elliott, the leader of um, the, the official Leave campaign, was delighted every time that the Remain campaign highlighted this, because it just kept on hammering, getting the message across, just kept on giving it um, attention. And they learnt, Matthew, people like Matthew Elliott had learnt, um, cut their teeth in the AV referendum, which Britain had held in 2011, mm. 2011, in which they shot down AV through partly by saying... You should explain what AV is. Oh, sorry, um, the alternative vote system. <coughs> Britain had a, a referendum on changing its electoral system. And these people had learnt that the way you shot down something like AV was to run campaigns about... We don't need a new electoral system. We need to cut waiting lists on the NHS. We don't need a new electoral system or constitutional change. We need kind of you know better better schools. Uh, why spend money on this? And they know you've got to you know, you've got to connect to people's emotions um, and concerns about domestic politics. And sure enough, that's what the referendum brought out in part: a vote against the elite, a vote against kind of globalization, Europe, you know, they kind of two mixed together. Yes, immigration was there, but was it just about immigration from Eastern Europe? Was it immigration about Turkey, Syria, North Africa, and so forth? So it brought out a whole range of issues. And I think Theresa May made the mistake of thinking she could put Brexit first and then everything else after it. Whereas Jeremy Corbyn, yes, and I'll come on to in a moment, he's accepted Brexit will happen, but he put other issues first. He put poverty issues first. He put health, he put welfare, he put transport and national, um, kind of nationalising or bringing back into public ownership the railway system first. And that connected to people better. Um, that's one of the basic lessons, I think, from the, um, the actual referendum campaign, which I don't think Theresa May quite learned. Um, but in terms of the actual negotiations going forward, um, there were three sets. First of all, those within the UK, and the most important one here is what I call the Brexit narrative, the debate over what the British people voted for last year. And as I said, did they actually vote on Brexit last year? Because we're still having the debate now about what Brexit's supposed to mean. The general election didn't have that, didn't bring that debate out. Yes, Theresa May has put down her ideas about a hard Brexit, but has Labour really debated what type of Brexit it actually wants? It is now bound, it is now, sorry, finds itself torn between a very strong Labour vote in areas like London, which is a very strong Remain vote, but at the same time, it picked up a large amount of UKIP voters, who were its former voters who went over to UKIP and have now come back to Labour in parts of the north of England. So Labour's in a bit of a bind here over what type of Brexit it wants. The Liberal Democrats are in a bit of a bind. Yes, they want another referendum, but they kind of don't know what to say about the, the type of deal they want to negotiate in, in advance of that referendum. The SNP are in a bind. Um, if you listen to the SNP, um, the Scottish National Party, during the campaign, um, they fudged the issue of Scotland's future membership of the European Union because they said they want Scotland to remain in the single market. If rejoining the European Union means joining the euro, no. That's going to be an incredibly difficult sell in Scotland because, funnily enough, the Scots are just as viewed the euro as just as toxic as people in England. 
So staying in the single market, a bit like Norway maybe. Um, so even the Scottish nationals have dilemmas here that they're trying to work through. And of course the Conservative Party now are definitely having to try and work through what Brexit is supposed to mean in future. Although I would not be surprised if Theresa May sticks to her interpretation that she's so far given, which is a hard Brexit, um, with possible concessions over Northern Ireland to the DUP. I, I think she might not move on this out of fear that it's the right of the Conservative Party will kind of stab her in the back. Um, so you've got the, the UK's negotiations on Brexit, the internal negotiations over what role Scotland will play and over what role the political parties, and now how Parliament will handle this, given that any legislation on Brexit will have to find its way through a Parliament where the government doesn't have a majority, and where the House of Lords, again, is not likely to play ball, given that the government doesn't have an overwhelming mandate. Um, and usually the House of Lords will defer if the government has a mandate, but it probably won't handle it in the future. The second set of negotiations are between the UK and the EU. Well, um, everybody has been asking the rest of the European Union, what are you going to do now, given what's happened in Britain? Are you going to pause Article 50 and so forth? And I don't think the rest of the European Union is going to pause Article 50. The clock is still ticking, um, so the two-year time frame is ticking down. There may be some slack given while Britain tries to work out what to do over the summer, because the substantial negotiations on Brexit were not really going to happen until after the German elections. That said, the detailed negotiations were already beginning, or due to begin in 10 days' time formally, in which certain things would be lined up, um, so the, kind of the easier matters would try to be got out of the way in advance of the German elections. So big things aren't really going to happen until later this year. So that gives Britain and the European Union a bit of time, but that time is running down, given Britain doesn't really know what it wants to do here entirely. Um, at the same time, the rest of the European Union is itself uneasy with approaching Brexit. Yes, so far it has approached Brexit in a very unified way. Almost because Britain is the spoilt child of the European Union, the rest, and this election again will almost antagonise the rest of the European Union to thinking, you know, we're going to have to give more concessions to this country that we've allowed to opt out from the Euro, we've given concessions such as um, rebates, we gave it a renegotiation, now it needs more time to negotiate Brexit. That patience reaches a limit at some point. And while everybody has been worried that perhaps Britain's dysfunctional political system will produce a situation in which Britain reaches the end of the two-year negotiating time frame, can't get an idea about what it wants, can't reach agreement with the European Union, therefore falls out in some form of disorderly hard Brexit, I wouldn't put it past the rest of the European Union to draw a line and say, we've had enough. Um, out means out. Um, you know, if it's going to cost us something, but it's going to cost you more so far. You know, at the end of the day, the two-year time frame runs down, you're out. Um, we've had enough. That said, there is the issue of what this will mean for the rest of the European Union in terms of funding, in terms of the budget negotiations. Um, this is a real sticking point, not just for the UK's EU relationships, but between the remaining EU member states over who is going to pay more. If there's anything that kind of divides the European Union, it's the EU budget. And if suddenly the UK falls out of the European Union without negotiating in, um, some form of payment, then that's going to leave, well, lead to quite some bitter arguments within the remaining European Union member states, as some member states pick up the tab um, and some um, refuse to do so. But the biggest question, and this is probably the third set of negotiations, which I think we sometimes in Britain overlook, is about what this lead, what this means for the rest of the European Union in terms of changing the EU. And here. There's not actually been that much study in terms of how the European Union, the remaining 27 member states, might change in terms of their balance of power. 
The UK, let's not forget, is a large member state. It has been, in the past, less so in the last 10 years, influential in shaping certain European Union policy areas. So Britain leaving creates a vacuum, and as we all know, nature abhors a vacuum. So how are the other member states going to manoeuvre to take advantage of Britain's departure? Are certain member states going to try and take advantage of this, to try and lead in certain areas? How is this going to change the Franco-German relationship, or will it change the Franco-German relationship? Is Britain's place in this always been slightly sidelined and irrelevant. Um, will it shift the balance of power in Europe further towards Eastern Europe and away from a kind of a more Atlanticist view, um, or a more liberal view? Um, where does it leave the smaller member states, visibly the bigger member states? Where does it leave the EU institutions? Guy Verhofstadt, the European Parliament's Brexit negotiator, has taken a bit of a kind of a forthright line on Brexit, not because of Britain, but because of his concern somewhat justified at the beginning, and I think this has faded away as time has gone by, that the European institutions would be shoved to the side by the bigger member states who'd negotiate a deal with Britain and then say the EU member states and the smaller states and the institutions, this is the deal, you'll accept it. And of course, the Parliament um, would find that um, difficult to accept because of what it would symbolise about the Parliament's position within the European Union. So where does Britain leaving leave the European Union's balance of power? That, arguably, is possibly the biggest debate that's really going on within the European Union that we're deaf to here in Britain. And I think possibly the final one which I'll end on um, is where this leaves the Eurozone versus the EU. Um, the EU, as we've understood it, um, is to some extent dead. Um, the Eurozone is now the EU. The largest non-Eurozone member is now leaving. So Poland, Sweden, and a few other member states that are not members of the Eurozone are going to find themselves under intense pressure now to either fall in line or accept that they will be a second-tier member of the European Union. The EU, as we've understood it, is now going to be radically transformed. We'll now take a short break and we'll be back shortly. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome back. You are listening to Global Business uh, with Mahesh Joshi. Our subject today is the rise of populism and the crisis of globalization, Brexit, Trump and beyond. Let's listen to the next expert talking about the Western democracy in the age of Trump. Trying to bring this debate is on the broader state of democracy, what Trump represents, the threat to it, 
uh, in the West and, and abroad. So um, I'm going to focus on sort of three levels of this. One is U.S. democracy, one is Western democracy, and one is the sort of the great idea of democracy around the world and, and the battle over whether or not this is actually an idea worth having be the end of history, as, as Francis Fukuyama famously claimed. So I'll start with the, the, the U.S. democracy aspects. I, mean, I think in a nutshell, uh, this doesn't take a PhD to recognize this, um, Trump is his own worst enemy, and he is the saving grace of the Trump presidency in a way, in the sense that his incompetence, erraticism, impulsivity, and recklessness are, are the things that are stopping him from actually doing the most damage which, which he could seriously do. Um, and, and that is helpful. But at the same time, uh, what, what I think the last four and a half months has basically shown is that uh, a lot of Western democracy, American democracy in particular, is built on these soft guardrails uh, called norms, right? They're, they're the things that are not actually codified into law, they're not strictly defined, they're just the things that everyone did because that's the way you do things in American democracy. And Trump has realized that and, and is exploiting that for all its worth. So, in America, we have uh, a series, I would say, of threats to democracy and damage to democracy that has already occurred. Right? This is not a speculative question. It's something where I think the damage has been done and it's going to be difficult to repair. Um, I, I use the analogy of democracy being something very much like a sandcastle in the sense that it is very easy to break and very, very hard to build. And, uh, and I think that Trump has already shown that in a few ways. So I'll, I'll start with ones that I think he's already damaged. Uh, one is the institution of a free press. So uh, the Democracy as a concept relies on informed consent of the government. Obviously, you have to agree to something popularly, so you have to know what you're agreeing to, and that's where the press plays such a high role. Now, it's obvious the whole fake news phenomenon, attacking mainstream media, etc., all this stuff has happened. But in addition to this, there's also been uh, a worrying level of violence against journalists, um, where they incredibly fear their safety in political rallies, in covering the press, etc., uh, and some of this has been very recent. So, for example, in a Montana special election uh, two weeks ago, a reporter for The Guardian in the U.S. Uh, was body slammed by the congressional candidate who broke his glasses. Uh, and then the following day, he was elected to the Congress. The Republicans basically uh, said nothing about this and accepted him after he won. He'll become part of the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives. And he, he pled guilty or will plead guilty today uh, to assaulting a journalist. So that's something. Uh, in addition to the fact that there was violence directed against reporters during the Trump campaign rallies, uh, and recently a, a newspaper in Kentucky uh, was shot at. So you know, th these are all very worrying, and they come in addition to the fact that there's this, this climate of anti-journalists, anti-media that is aggressively being stoked, not just by Trump, but because it's actually somewhat successful, uh, Republican strategists heading towards the 2018 midterms have signaled that they are planning to make 2018 a referendum on the media as opposed to on Trump, because they know if it's a referendum on Trump, they'll likely lose a huge number of seats. So I think that's a, a very worrying thing, uh, and it relates to this flow of information uh, aspect uh, of democracy in terms of fake news, genuinely fake news, um, and also uh, misinformation campaigns. Uh, a second aspect that where Trump's done damage is the idea that voting integrity in the United States is actually full of integrity. Uh, the good news is that in terms of the process of counting and tabulating ballots and who's voting, uh, there's actually a very large amount of integrity. It's a very clean system. The main problem in the U.S. with voting integrity is voter suppression, um, with uh, disenfranchisement that tends to, to disproportionately target minority voters. 
So voter ID, for example, is something that's long been uh, a strategy of Republicans in the U.S. where they try to force identifications uh, to vote. They seem like it makes a lot of sense. But the predominant uh, license that I have in my pocket, and I imagine I don't know if you still do, Leslie, but we have driver's license, which costs money. And if you don't have a car, you don't have one. So it's, it's basically creating a cost to voting uh, in many states. This has been a long part of the playbook. Now, what Trump has done is he's mainstreamed this false idea that 3 million people illegally voted in 2016, uh, predominantly illegal immigrants. This is not just untrue, but the logic defies reason, because illegal immigrants live in the shadows of the United States because they are so worried about being discovered and therefore deported, particularly in an era of Trump politics, right? So the last thing they're going to do is march into a voting booth, particularly in a place like California, where there's already going to be a Democrat winning and put themselves at risk of deportation to cast one illegal ballot, which is a felony and carries jail time. Right? It doesn't make any sense why anyone would do this, and that's why it doesn't happen. When they actually do audits, uh, North Carolina, for example, did an actual audit, and they found one case of in-person voter fraud, um, and it was somebody who was trying to post for their recently deceased spouse who said, if I die, you know, vote for Trump. So, uh, so this whole thing is it's, it's a problem uh, because... Many people, unfortunately, falsely believe that this is true. So there's polls that show 40% of Republicans believe that the votes are not counted fairly in the United States. This means that in the next couple of years, I imagine there will be intensifying state-level campaigns to um, suppress voting even more. Uh, and this comes in an aspect of voter suppression that already exists where, where felons uh, are not allowed to vote in the United States. So you typically have a very minority-skewed uh, suppression in that regard, too. So the voting, the press, these are issues. The independent, uh, independent institutions in the United States have been politicized rapidly under the Trump presidency. Um, you have outright attacks on judges, so-called judges, saying that this judge can't rule on my case because he's got Mexican heritage, as he famously said in the campaign. Uh, he said that the judges who ruled against his travel ban being unconstitutional had the blood of Americans on their hands, and he, he said that it's their fault that there's a future terrorist attack. And beyond the politicization of the judiciary, um, he's also talked, uh, attacked the Congressional Budget Office, which has, since uh, the 1970s, been the independent arbiter of how much a policy actually costs. So if you propose a law, how much will it cost? It's nonpartisan. It is, re- it is led by a Republican appointee who is somebody handpicked by Trump's Health and Human Services Secretary, and yet when that person scored the Trump Care Health proposal, they attacked it as wildly inaccurate and partisan, right? If someone who was picked by their health secretary in the past, who was, a Repo- who was himself a Republican, leading a totally nonpartisan independent agency. And that's being politicized when they say the CBO is just this wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, that's really dangerous because if you have no neutral arbiters of what legislation actually does, uh, you can't actually make an informed decision as a populist. So that's another aspect uh, of American democracy. And these things are continuing. I mean, this is something that over and over the Trump presidency is pushing the boundaries of what are standard norms in, in, in American democracy. Tax returns is another good example, right? We can talk more about that. But, but, but the overall point I'm trying to make is that we are seeing to it a remarkable degree that checks and balances enshrined in law are a very small portion of the equation in cre- keeping American democracy within the, the, the confines of those soft guardrails. Uh, and that's something where I think three and a half more years of this Eventually, you do just accept things as normal when they happen for four years. And, and that's something that I'm very concerned about. Uh, I think within the era of Trump, uh, if I move on to the second layer, this is the crisis of, of Western democracy. 
We have sort of uh, two things that are happening at the same time. One is there's a complete frame of establishment politics in a way that hurts democracy because uh, the institutional arrangements that I highlighted before are under threat. On the other hand, there are people who see op- opportunities in that, in that uh, Western democracies are much more responsive to a broader menu of possible ideas, including radical ideas, right? So Jeremy Corbyn being a labor leader, uh, also having Trump on the ballot and winning. Uh, some people who talk about democracy would say, well, this is a system working, right? It's a backlash against uh, system, system, a system of politics that has actually left behind a significant part of the workforce and created no real wage increases for decades. So on that mark, there is some room to argue that democracy is responding to this by, by making sure that politicians actually take these voices seriously. On the other hand, the way in which that's happening is extremely counterproductive. Right? I mean, Trump is accelerating policies that hurt the very people who are back, who are lashing out against the system. And I imagine that Brexit will have a very similar consequence. I know you talked about this this morning, so I won't more, but I imagine that will be a very similar outcome in the UK, is that the people who most want the system to change are going to have a change in a way that hurts them even further. And that's going to alienate politics more, right? So in, in, the, in the Western societies, I think this aspect of inequality, backlash against globalization, anti-system politics, you can see democracy working, but it's working in a way that's very, very counterproductive, and that's particularly because uh, we have a, a problem with Western democracy these days that uh, people are being asked to make extremely complicated um, economic, political decisions without levels of economic and political literacy that can keep up. And that's happening at a time when menu of media options is expanding so greatly uh, that people think they are extremely informed and many are accessing more information than ever before but they're in part self-selecting partisan echo chambers, right? Where people are certain they're right, but are unwilling to uh, review alternative information that might actually challenge their beliefs. And I think that's a really perfect storm uh, for populism. And that's why in this moment of Western democracy and the crisis of it, I'm seeing, in my opinion, basically a, a test case that is uh, going to determine how Western democracy goes forward. Because if Trump is a disaster, if Brexit is a disaster, if any of these Western populists that actually make it into power are disasters, they become cautionary tales for uh, populists elsewhere, and they actually help establish their politics. Right? It's a weird system where, uh, as an American, I, there's a part of me that is thinking long term and thinking, you know, I want America to succeed, but I also don't want to succeed so much that copycat Trumps emerge in every co- country around the West, and that they actually. That, that recipe of the more refined, less reckless Trump becomes the recipe for how to win elections um, by exploiting you know, sort of the worst thing in our emotional you know, capacity as humans. So that's, that's, that's the second layer. I think there's a genuine crisis of Western democracy of people feeling like the system didn't work, we're going to fight the system through democratic means, but maybe that will actually make people more alienated with democracy if it continues to deliver results that are more antagonistic to their goals. So I think that's, that's the second layer. The third layer is this crisis of democracy more generally and the idea that democracy is the best system of government. So in this, I sort of see a battle between China, the Chinese model, which is the most credible alternative, and the Western model for democracy. Now, we have now over a decade of decline in democracy around the world. Uh, there have been 11 years where the world has become less democratic than the previous year. Um, and that, I think, is accelerated for, for, for two reasons. One is the Western crisis of democracy, this credibility of the model is being questioned. And two is President Trump's own foreign policy, which is embracing non-democratic governments in a way that is sending a clear signal uh, that the U.S. doesn't care about democracy and human rights anymore. 
Um, but in, in terms of this, this Chinese, the Chinese model versus the Western model, uh, what I think, the way I think this is going to play out in most places in the middle, right, the sort of 100 plus countries that have a lot of people in them but never make headlines, Africa, Southeast Asia, Latin America, et cetera, uh, is that they will use the Chinese model as a pretext for why they don't need to fully democratize and hold elections, but they will not adopt the strengths of the Chinese model. So if you think about what China is doing, it's got an effective bureaucratic system that is full of technocrats executing policy. The weakness it has intrinsically, why I still believe in Western democracy, is because that does nothing for making value judgments, which are effectively what politics are about. Politics are about taking a set of value judgments, accepting the will of the people, in my opinion, and then executing them effectively. China is extremely good at executing them effectively, but they don't have a mechanism to really in incorporate what the will of the people is on value judgments. In countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo, they point to China and say, this is proof that we shouldn't hold elections because there's this volatility and you get the wrong answer with Brexit or Trump. But they've got like six guys running the country. They don't have the bureaucrats and the technocracy to implement policy effectively. So it's the worst of both worlds. And that's what I'm afraid is playing out, is the allure of the Chinese model being used as a pretext to undercut democracy in places where it actually could help, at the same time where the second part of that one-two punch is Trump's foreign policy undercutting the model of Western democracy and actively aiding and abetting dictators and despots around the world by saying, we embrace you, right? And, and that is the really scary, perfect storm uh, that I think is happening right now if you think, if you care about democracy around the world or in the West. We'll now take a short break and we'll be back with you shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. Uh, our subject today is the rise of populism and the crisis of globalization, Brexit, Trump, and beyond. Uh, we are in the last segment of our program today, and uh, we are going to cover a very important subject. Let's listen to the expert on Trump and the future of great power relations. So the starting point is uh, two, two secular trends that I think are very strong. Uh, the first one is that we are moving out of a two-century-long period in which the international system was dominated by the West, whether colonially or informally or whatever. There's been a small, mainly Western core of powers 
that has largely run the show for the last couple of hundred years. And that's now coming to an end for, for better or for worse. Related, but not the same, um, is uh, the idea that uh, the global system is becoming, it's becoming both more globalized in a variety of ways, but also more decentered. Um, in other words, wealth is diffusing, power is diffusing, and authority is diffusing. So these, I think, the, both of these trends, they're linked, but they're not the same. Um, and they, in a sense, define the world in which we're going to uh, find ourselves over the coming uh, decades. So the, one of the key um, throwaway points here is that this will be a world without superpowers. Um, superpowers are in secular, secular decline anyway. We used to have three briefly, then we had two, then we had one, and you can see where this is going. Um, and uh, that, I think, for those of you who are international relations geeks, that's actually more than passingly interesting. Uh, because if that happens, then the whole neorealist structure of polarity theory, bipolarity, becomes meaningless. Right? Because it presupposes that uh, polarity is based on superpowers that command the world and compete for the world. But the world in which we're moving, if I'm right, will have no superpowers, but it will have quite a lot of great powers uh, and regional powers. And the United States uh, will uh, become one of those. The basic reason why there will be no superpowers is because nobody's going to be able to concentrate the resources or the authority necessary to be a superpower. I mean, for Britain and the and the U.S., that was kind of forty percent of the global GDP, and that's just not going to happen um, because okay, the Chinese are rising, but so is everybody else, and therefore, for any one country or even a group of countries to command the level of resources necessary to be a superpower is going to get more and more difficult. That means that. Uh, a strong likelihood, I would put it no more than that, is that there will be no, no competition to control the world. Um, partly because nobody has the will uh, to do it. The United States is clearly losing the will, as we've been hearing. Uh, the Chinese say they don't want to control the world, but on the whole, I, I believe them uh, on this. Uh, the Europeans don't even bother to say that they, uh, <laughs> they don't want to control the world because it's obvious. Uh, increasingly, I think there's no legitimacy for that role. Uh, the United States has been burning legitimacy for the last two decades at a great rate, um, and I think that that role is now, in some senses, no longer wanted in the way that it used to be. Um, so, this, it seems to me, is going to be a world in which um, power is quite diffuse, um, in which the the structures of things are going, probably going to be more regional because there's not going to be so much of a competition for uh, the global power, um, in which uh, cultural authority and legitimacy will also be more diffuse. Right? So we're looking here at the end of the liberal project as well. I mean, the liberal project has claimed to own the future for a long time since it was backed by uh, Western power. That was a reasonably plausible claim. Now that claim is disintegrating, and indeed um, uh, many aspects of the liberal ideology are disintegrating in, the, in their core. So it seems to me we're looking here at the end of the liberal hegemonic project 
people will still believe in liberalism in various parts of the world, but it's no longer going to own the future. Um, and there will be a lot of room for other visions. The, uh, the Chinese alternative has already been mentioned, um, and there are various other visions of this out there. So the world is going to become politically, culturally, uh, authoritatively a much more diffuse place, as well as wealth and power being more, uh, more diffuse. A bit more worryingly, I think, is that these great powers that we have are uh, probably going to be mostly rather autistic. Uh, in other words, very inward-looking, self-referential, uh, and not very socially adept. Trump is demonstrating this in spades, how to be socially inept, I mean, object lessons all, all through. Um, but I think the Western powers in general are going that way. The European Union is by its very nature um, uh, inward-looking and localistic because it's so very complicated to run. Uh, um, the Japanese have long since given up thinking about much other than themselves. Um, these countries have all tried to uh, uh, to run the world and mainly uh, now feel that they have failed and they're running out of energy and will and steam. They don't want to do this anymore and their electorates don't want to do it anymore either. I remember a long time ago when I wrote a book on the United States and the Great Powers, I came across a number of American writers, writers about American foreign policy, who all said in one way or another that really the only way that, uh, that the United States is going to be dethroned quickly as a superpower is if the American electorate votes against it. And they just did. <laughs> um, so it, it seems to me there's, there's some, some interesting things going on there. On the other hand, the rising great powers are autistic for different reasons. If you look at the rhetoric of the Chinese and the Indians, uh, what they're basically saying is, we want all of the status and such like of being a great power, and we want the recognition. But we don't want to give up the status and recognition of being developing countries either. Um, so our main problem is to develop ourselves. Don't give us anything else to do. We don't want to be responsible for the rest of the world. We've got enough to do, you know, doing the, 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 you know, the billion people that we each represent. That's our big chunk of humankind. Let us get on with that. The rhetoric out of Beijing uh, and uh, Delhi on that is almost identical, which is quite, uh, quite striking. So a world of relatively inward-looking, sometimes autistic great powers. What impact is Trump going to have on, uh, on any of this? Um, it seems to me that he's going to accelerate this trend. The trend is happening anyway, um, but uh, the election of Trump and his behavior is going to make it happen more quickly. And I think this is not uh, mainly an issue of material power. Um, and that's a mistake that a lot of political scientists make because they're thinking in material terms. I think you were looking for some way of describing this, and it, it seems to me that if you're thinking, thinking about American superpowerdom, you know, it's partly material power, but mainly it's been the kind of social structure and the social power. The fact that America has been trusted, that it's been a reliable ally, um, that it's played the hegemonic role, and that it has represented a set of values that had fairly wide resonance, whether you like them or not. Trump is busily dismantling all of that as fast as he can go. He's dismantling it in part by the simple incoherence of his policies, which we've heard quite a bit here already, uh, but also in the sense that he 
doesn't seem to care about the relationships of trust. But really, although he may be vacillating back and forth and not, as it were, uh, actually doing some of the things he threatened to do, in this process he's destroying the trust on which all of these relationships are built. Nobody can now sit down and say, we're absolutely sure the Americans will come if we invoke Article 5. Or for the Japanese and the Koreans, you know, we're, we're absolutely sure. They, they just have now to think, well, maybe we should start taking into account the fact that they might not. This Angela Merkel's speech uh, the other day, uh, which from a German I thought was particularly, uh, particularly interesting. So Trump is abandoning liberal values and therefore giving up, in a sense, that, uh, yeah, that, that was again a trend within the US before under Bush, but he's made it much more uh, explicit. He's undoing the trade regimes, which put America in a very central position um, in the world and gave it all kinds of institutional uh, advantages. Uh, no longer willing to play the, uh, the hedge fund, etc., etc., etc. So he's basically um, undermining the social part of America's claim to be a superpower. And I think this chimes in with the Brexit theme because basically, I think rather unexpectedly, we've had a kind of implosion of the Anglosphere. The Anglosphere has been the core of the core of world order for the last 200 years, whether you like it or not. And it's just disappeared in the, in the last few years. Right? Trump has basically said, we're not going to do this. Um, and then the Brits have basically said, <laughs> we're going to go off and drift out into nowhere land and sink uh, quietly into Little England. Um, so basically, the neoliberal uh, project, which has been pushed by the Anglosphere, uh, is now dead in its core. Uh, and, and this seems to me to be, uh, to be quite consequential. So um, that, I think, is... is the one side of things uh, that Trump is not responsible for this, but he will move America out of superpowerdom and into great powerdom faster than would have happened otherwise, simply because he's playing absolute mayhem with the social side um, of American power and authority. And uh, I think the damage is not going to be recoverable. Um, in the sense it seems to be deeply embedded in, uh, in the American political system. Um, the one other issue here, which I, uh, I think I would address, is that um, if there was a hopeful side in my, uh, in my kind of decentered globalism, or I don't know, uh, labels vary for it, you might want to call it deep uh, or embedded pluralism, something like that, um, there was a positive side to this. It was that this more diffuse international order with more diffuse centers of authority, etc., uh, and more diffuse wealth and power, uh, was facing an increasingly long list of shared fate problems, which provided, in a sense, the impetus for ongoing international cooperation. So we're all, you know, we're all capitalists now. Uh, read the literature on varieties of capitalism. Very entertaining. But capitalism comes in all kinds of different political forms, but pretty much all the major powers are some version of capitalism. And that creates a strong common interest in keeping a reasonable amount of the global economy going. It becomes a shared 
fate in a way that it wasn't, uh, say, during the Cold War or, or earlier. There's the environmental issues, there's the health issues, there's the you know, internet issues, there's blocks of faces, all kinds of stuff, um, which we can talk about if you want, but I'm sure you're familiar with it. Um, the interesting thing is that Trump doesn't seem to get this either. And, and I think the key here is the, um, uh, the environmental thing and the rejection of the Paris Court. Because the interesting thing about the environmental issue is that it's not hinged to liberal ideology. Right? I mean, democracy and human rights and all of this other stuff is very much part of the liberal agenda and therefore controversial if you don't like the liberal agenda. The environmental stuff has nothing to do with the liberal agenda at all. It's about shared fate, about the climate and uh, all of that, uh, and the biosphere of the planet on, on which we live, and therefore should be the archetypal shared fate problem uh, around which a diverse international society can actually coalesce, because there's not anything really seriously ideological about that. And Trump is basically just put the boot into that as well. That, I find, far and away the most worrying aspect of his presidency. Most of the rest of what's going on is just going to happen a bit faster because he's there. This, however, um, it seems to me, uh, threatens, as it were, the, uh, the, the most promising foundations for, uh, for global order. We have now come to the end of our program. Uh, thank you for tuning in today. Uh, we covered a very important subject in uh, last two episodes, the rise of populism and the crisis of globalization. It seems from Professor Cox and uh, the various experts on uh, the subjects concerning the populism and globalization that the next few years are uh, uh, pretty crucial for the geopolitical uh, equations and how the globalization will get impacted. Thank you for being with us today.